Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Bodhidharma's wake-up sermon. In the light of the impartial Dharma, mortals look no different from sages. The sutras say that the impartial Dharma is something that mortals can't penetrate and sages can't practice. The impartial Dharma is only practiced by great bodhisattvas and Buddhas. To look on life as different from death or on motion as different from stillness is to be partial. To be impartial means to look on suffering as no different from nirvana because the nature of both is emptiness. By imagining that they're putting an end to suffering and entering nirvana, arhats end up trapped by nirvana. But bodhisattvas know that suffering is essentially empty. And by remaining in emptiness, they remain in nirvana. Nirvana means no birth and no death. It's beyond birth and death and beyond nirvana. When the mind stops moving, it enters nirvana. Nirvana is an empty mind. Where delusions don't exist, bodhisattvas enter the place of enlightenment. An uninhabited place is one without greed, anger, or delusion. Greed is the realm of desire. Anger, the realm of form. And delusion, the formless realm. When a thought begins, you enter the three realms. When a thought ends, you leave the three realms. The beginning or end of the three realms, the existence or non-existence of anything depends on the mind. This applies to everything, even to such inanimate objects as rocks, and sticks. Whoever knows that the mind is a fiction and devoid of anything real knows that his own mind neither exists nor does it not exist. Mortals keep creating the mind claiming it exists. And arhats keep negating the mind claiming it doesn't exist. 
but bodhisattvas and Buddhas neither create nor negate the mind. This is what's meant by the mind that neither exists nor doesn't exist. The mind that neither exists nor doesn't exist is called the middle way. So for some of us, there are some adjustments to be made. For some of us, no. But I'll wait for all of the adjustments to be made to begin speaking. For some of us, this is the second day of session, second full day of session. For some, just the first day of session. It's a beautiful day here in Rhode Island. Much sunnier than had been predicted much more temperate than had been predicted. A lovely, lovely day. And continuing with Bodhidharma's wake up sermon, which I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, rather a long sermon. So it, if one is going to speak of it at all, uh, one really needs to break it down into parts. There are themes which are repeated over and over again in the sermon, but it's just too long to digest in one sitting. One can think of religions and practices as expositions of the seminal texts on which they may be based. In this way, one can think of Christianity as largely an exposition of the four gospels. One can think of the Quran and Islam, Islam being an exposition of their major text, the Quran. Similarly, in Judaism, the Torah gives birth to the Talmud gives birth to practices throughout the centuries. In Zen Buddhism, one can think of two different strains. One is Buddhism, 
which is really an exposition of Shakyamuni Buddha's Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path. But Zen transcends Buddhism, transcends all isms. Yes, Zen is a branch of Buddhism, but at its root is something which goes beyond and cannot be comprehended in words, cannot be simplified, cannot be held. And the text, which is the seminal text for Zen is what we were chanting this morning, the Diamond Sutra. All of Zen can be thought of as an exposition, commentary, and practical demonstration of the Diamond Sutra. The Diamond Sutra can be shortened and condensed into the Heart Sutra. That can be condensed even further into and Bodhidharma, when you approach his sermons, his texts, it's always good to keep the Diamond Sutra in mind. I'll come back to that in a little while, but just beginning this particular excerpt from the wake up sermon. In the light of the impartial Dharma, mortals look no different from sages. The impartial Dharma, that's such a wonderful, Phrase. I've never seen it expressed in that form in any other text or any other talk. And one might wonder what he means by the impartial Dharma. To my mind, it echoes the beginning of the bodhisattva's vow. When I, a student of Dharma, look at the real form of the universe, all is the never failing manifestation of the mysterious truth of Tathagata. In any event, in any moment, and in any place, none can be other than the marvelous revelation of its glorious light. 
that is true impartiality. The sun shines on the good and the evil. the rich, the poor. The Dharma shines its light on all of us without partiality. The sutras say that the impartial dharma is something that mortals can't penetrate and sages can't practice. The impartial dharma is only practiced by great bodhisattvas and buddhas. The Diamond Sutra talks about charity. And the need to have charity completely separate from form, completely separate from one's ideas, one's attachments, to give unfailingly. Sabuti, when bodhisattvas give a gift, they should not be attached to a thing. When they give a gift, they should not be attached to anything at all. They should not be attached to a sight when they give a gift, nor should they be attached to a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dharma when they give a gift. Thus, Subhuti, fearless bodhisattvas should give a gift without being attached to the perception of an object. And why, Sabuti, the body of merit of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being attached is not easy to measure. The body of those bodhisattvas who give a gift without being attached is not easy to measure. Thus, Sabuti, those who set forth on the Bodhisattva path should give a gift without being attached to the perception of an object. I think this is what Bodhidharma means when he says the impartial Dharma is only practiced by great Bodhisattvas and Buddhas. It's hard to give without being attached 
in some form without setting conditions on the receiver, without setting conditions on the nature of the gift, without setting boundaries around one's heart and one's mind. But this is the impartial Dharma. As practiced by great bodhisattvas and Buddhas. To look on life as different from death. Or on motion. As different from stillness is to be partial. To look on life and death as separate and distinct, that's partial. To look on suffering and nirvana as separate and distinct, that's partial. Of course, this is the nature of our everyday existence. This is how we perceive the world, how we generally conduct ourselves in the world. And such distinctions are necessary in order to function in the world. I don't think anyone can argue that they are not. And because such distinctions are necessary to function in the world and necessary even to evolve one's character, one's ethical being, we have the marvelous teachings of the Buddha on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the wonderful teachings of the precepts and the paramitas, which help us along the way to know which way to turn, how best to conduct ourselves, how to function in society, in community, in family. And these things are wonderful and to be cherished. This is the Buddhism part of Zen Buddhism. But the Zen part of Zen Buddhism is rooted in the impartial dharma, 
to be impartial means to look on suffering as no different from nirvana because the nature of both is emptiness. To go back to the Diamond Sutra. Once again, the Buddha asked the Venerable Subhuti, what do you think Subhuti? Did the Tathagata realize any such Dharma as unexcelled, perfect enlightenment? And does the Tathagata teach any such Dharma? The Venerable Subhuti answered, Bhagavan, as I understand the meaning of what the Buddha says, the Tathagata did not realize any such Dharma as unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. Nor does the Tathagata teach such a Dharma. And why? Because this Dharma realized and taught by the Tathagata is incomprehensible and inexpressible, and neither a Dharma nor no Dharma. And why? Because sages arise from what is uncreated. That's a, an awful lot of words to say move. But it expresses very much what Bodhidharma is expressing in his wake up sermon. By imagining that they're putting an end to suffering and entering nirvana, arhats end up trapped by nirvana. But bodhisattvas know that suffering is essentially empty. And by remaining in emptiness, they remain in nirvana. Nirvana means no birth and no death. I think last time that I spoke about Bodhidharma's wake-up sermon, I was marveling at just how weird Bodhidharma seems in all of the legends and myths surrounding him and in his many pronouncements. And I hope that nobody thought that I was using weird in a pejorative sense. I, I don't mean it to be any kind of negative, but there is 
something deeply strange about teachings which cannot be grasped through thought. And this sermon, just as the Diamond Sutra and just as the Heart Sutra and just as move, they're not something that you can think about. You can't reason your way through this. You can't reason about emptiness. You can't think about remaining in emptiness and therefore remaining in nirvana or suffering and nirvana are essentially the same because both are empty. These are things which can be experienced. When the reasoning mind is set aside, when any hope of understanding is set aside, When black and white and life and death and nirvana and suffering are encountered without the filters of the dualistic mind, the experience of emptiness opens up by itself. But it's not something that you can easily talk about or think about or explain. This is why we practice, why we sit, why the suffering of the body and the suffering of the mind during practice are essential. You cannot go beyond them without going through them. This being Golden Wind Session and a commemoration of sorts of one of the great Zen masters Uman. I thought I might use one of the koans, the many koans that Uman is featured in. Perhaps it will shed some light on Bodhidharma's wake up sermon, perhaps not. But in Uman Khan, case 15, 
goes on 60 blows. We meet Uman and Tozan. Tozan came to study with Uman. Uman asked, where are you from? From Seto, Tozan replied. Where were you during the summer? Well, I was at the monastery of Hozu, south of the lake. When did you leave there? Uman asked. On August 25, was Tozan's reply. Uman said, I spare you 60 blows. The next day, Tozan came to Uman and said, Yesterday, you said you spared me 60 blows. I beg to ask you, where was I at fault? Oh, you rice bag, shouted Uman. What makes you wander about? Now west of the river, now south of the lake. And Tozan thereupon came to a mighty enlightenment experience. You rice bag. What makes you wander about? Wandering about in the realm of life and death, suffering in nirvana. Wandering about with ideas, with facts. Uman is not asking for facts. He's not asking for a biography. Uman is pointing directly at Tozan's heart, his heart mind, and saying, what's going on in there? What are you all about? Where do you come from? The Heart Sutra says sages come from the uncreated, the unborn. Tozan says he comes from Seto. The genius of Uman. is to prod and push and create within his students a great doubt, that doubt that is necessary to uncover great faith, great understanding, great heart. Without that suffering, the heart is weak. Without pushing beyond 
facts, dates, geography. The mind is weak. The mind settles. The mind moves. What happens when the mind doesn't move? Bodhisattvas know that suffering is essentially empty. And by remaining in emptiness, they remain in nirvana. Nirvana means no birth and no death. It's beyond birth and death and beyond nirvana. Nirvana is beyond nirvana. Beyond any thought that you might have. Beyond the digital world of one and zero, black and white, positive, negative. When the mind stops moving, it empty, it enters nirvana. We often think of enlightenment or nirvana as a final destination, something that we may experience after long, long years of practice, something that will overturn our world, turn it upside down, and afterwards there's no more suffering. But that's partiality. That's not the impartial Dharma. Nirvana can be entered into simply by being here. By not moving. When the mind stops moving, it enter, enters nirvana. Now, because of our karma, the force of habit, our attachments, we may quickly tumble back out again. 
tumbling back into the world of partiality, of suffering as suffering and nirvana as nirvana. And why does my leg hurt? But nirvana is always here with us, always. It's not a final destination. It is what is here now if we simply learn to appreciate it. Learn not by memorizing facts and figures, words, sutras, but simply stop the mind. Simply be quiet. Nirvana is an empty mind. Another way of saying it is nirvana is the mind of emptiness or mindfulness of emptiness. Where delusions don't exist, bodhisattvas enter the place of enlightenment. Where delusions don't exist, bodhisattvas enter the place of enlightenment. It's not that they open a door and, hey, it's enlightenment world. There's no door to open or close. There are just delusions or no delusions. And where there are no delusions, that is an uninhabited place. An uninhabited place is one without greed, anger, or delusion. Greed is the realm of desire. Anger, the realm of form. And delusion, the formless realm. When a thought begins, you enter the three realms. When a thought ends, you leave the three realms. When a thought begins, you enter the three realms. Now, of course, it is not possible or desirable to live a life without thought. Our minds are not constructed in such a fashion. The thoughts are the way in which we negotiate the world 
and thoughts in and of themselves are not the enemy. That being said, Bodhidharma is pointing out that thought comes at a cost. When a thought begins, you enter the three realms. When a thought ends, you leave the three realms. The beginning or end of the three realms, the existence or non-existence of anything depends on the mind. This is a hard teaching to wrap your head around. And yet we can sense the truth of it. We know how much our thinking shapes our view of even what we like to think of as objective reality. We create the world through our thoughts. We shade our perceptions by our thoughts. And as Bodhidharma says, this applies to everything, even to such inanimate objects as rocks and sticks. And it may be a good moment to point out that so much of our divisions and our difficulty with other human beings revolve around the difficulty we have in distinguishing thoughts from reality so that those who think differently from us become our enemy or at least people that we'd rather not associate with. And to attain the impartiality of Dharma, the openness of heart and mind, to not treat our thought or someone else's thought as having objective 
reality, objective weight, objective value. To at least maintain an openness of heart and mind is truly part of the Bodhisattva project. To maintain the mind of impartial love, even to those with whom we disagree. is difficult, but this is the greatest act of charity. Charity, which is not attached to form. Whoever knows that the mind is a fiction and devoid of anything real, knows that his own mind neither exists nor does it not exist. This is the greatest openness of heart and mind. To know that the mind is a fiction and devoid of anything real. Is to know the impartial Dharma. Is to know that your mind my mind, this mind, neither exists nor does it not exist. Mortals keep creating the mind. Mortals is a phrase which Bodhidharma uses, and I'm not sure what the word in classical Chinese is, um, you could use one of Ada Roshi's favorite words, which was bumpkins. Bumpkins. Keep creating the mind, claiming it exists. And arhats. I don't know if everyone knows what an arhat is, but it's a term used mostly in Theravadan Buddhism. They are adepts. They are people who are well along the path and soon to be non-returning, soon to enter the realm of nirvana. 
arhats keep negating the mind, claiming it doesn't exist. What bodhisattvas and Buddhas neither create nor negate the mind. One doesn't waste time either believing in falsehoods or arguing that they're false. One doesn't hold on to one's delusions either by defending them or trying to strike them down. And just cuts through, jettisons, just leaves it alone, leaves it behind. Bodhisattvas and Buddhas neither create nor negate the mind. This is what's meant by the mind that neither exists nor doesn't exist. And again, I come back to the Diamond Sutra. Speaking of which, the, the translation of the Diamond Sutra that I've been reading from is um, not the translation that we read um, in the Zendo. I actually don't have uh, that translation, um, but it's a translation by the scholar and Zen practitioner Red Pine, who has done such wonderful translations of Bodhidharma, including the uh, Wake Up Sermon that I'm reading right now. He's also translated uh, the Platform Sutra of Wineng. Um, and he translated the Diamond Sutra with a rather lengthy uh, commentary on the Diamond Sutra. Very, very nice translation. Bodhidharma's statement, this is what's meant by the mind that neither exists nor doesn't exist. Sounds so much like the passage from the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Sutra that I just read concerning enlightenment. Do the Tathagata realize any such dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment? And does the Tathagata teach any such dharma? The Venerable Sabuti thereupon answered, Bhagavan, as I understand the meaning of what the Buddha says, the Tathagata did not realize any such dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment, nor does the Tathagata teach such a dharma. And why? Because this dharma realized and taught by the Tathagata is incomprehensible and inexpressible and neither a dharma nor no dharma. And why? Because sages 
arise from what is uncreated. The Bodhidharma says, this is what's meant by the mind that neither exists nor doesn't exist. The mind that neither exists nor doesn't exist is called the middle way. The middle way is the path that runs through suffering and nirvana, looking neither left nor right, simply going straight ahead. And now because I've spoken about such weighty things, I thought I'd end with a poem. This is a poem by the American poet, Billy Collins. And it's called Silence. There is the sudden silence of the crowd above a motionless player on the field and the silence of the orchid. The silence of the falling vase before it strikes the floor. The silence of the belt when it is not striking the child. the stillness of the cup and the water in it, the silence of the moon and the quiet of the day far from the roar of the sun. The silence when I hold you to my chest, the silence of the window above us, and the silence when you rise and turn away. And there is the silence of this morning, which I have broken with my pen, a silence that had piled up all night, like snow falling in the darkness of the house. The silence before I wrote a word, and the poorer silence now. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.